We make decisions every day, but these days, those decisions, big and small, can feel paralyzing. Welcome to Deciding Factors, a new podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. Each week, I'll talk to a world-class expert who has faced incredibly tough decisions and can offer unique insights to help you navigate the decisions you face. As we approach the end of 2020, it's difficult to reconcile the conflicting signals and assess the outlook for the world's fight against COVID. On the one hand, pharmaceutical companies have collaborated to accomplish what many scientists call a miracle in developing not one, but several effective vaccines. On the other hand, in the month of December alone, we saw over 3,000 COVID deaths in a single day in the United States. 1.5 million people have died globally from COVID-19, by far the most in the United States at over 290,000. That eclipses the number of Americans who died in combat in World War II. And across the globe, populations remain divided in their willingness to adopt measures most medical professionals think are required to effectively combat the spread of this deadly pandemic. My guest today has a clearer view on where things actually stand than most. Dr. Michael Osterholm is a global authority on infectious diseases and public health and among America's most prominent epidemiologists. He is currently Regents Professor and Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. He spent two decades as head epidemiologist at the Minnesota Department of Health and is author of the 2017 book, The Deadliest Enemy, a New York Times bestseller about the threat posed by global pandemics. And while Dr. Osterholm serves on the 13-member Biden Transition COVID-19 Advisory Board, he spoke with me from his vantage point as a global infectious disease key opinion leader and not on behalf of the advisory board. Few possess Dr. Osterholm's federal and state-level experience his ability to communicate clearly and in accessible blunt language, and his humanitarian passion, all of which came through in our conversation. Dr. Osterholm, welcome to Deciding Factors. We're honored to have you on today. Well, thank you, Eric. It's an honor to be with you. Can you help us contextualize where we are? On the one hand, it seems like it's never been more dire. On the other hand, we do seem to have some glimmers of hope. Let me just start out by saying these are the best of times and the worst of times. The vaccine is clearly on the horizon. I will add some context to that. But as you pointed out, uh, this is really the most uh, dangerous time I believe we've been in terms of public health since 1918 and swine flu pandemic that occurred then. We have not yet even factored in the number of deaths that have occurred from heart attacks, strokes, all the other things that have care has been compromised by by having up to a quarter of our hospitals in this country literally overrun right now. And providing care for those conditions has been severely compromised. So that's where we're at. And that's going to get worse uh, before it gets better over the days ahead, particularly as we get into the holiday season and more travel and movement. In terms of the vaccine, which is the best of times, I'm a little bit concerned that I think we think we're going to find uh, the magic bullet and it will quickly eliminate this disease. I think that's not at all the case. It is really important, but uh, we're going to have limited number of doses of this vaccine for the next uh, 60 to 90 days. We also have lots of challenges yet about how to use the vaccine. For example, 70% of our healthcare workers in this country are women, mostly nurses. Among nurses, 340,000 at any one moment are estimated to be pregnant. We don't have a clue whether you can use this vaccine in pregnant women yet. The data we have right now is not good. 
Uh, 45% of Americans in the most recent Gallup poll said that they were very leery of this vaccine, not sure they'll take it because uh, of safety concerns. I, we just have some new data in, in physicians uh, suggesting that as high as, as 30% of physicians in this country are deciding for themselves they're going to wait six months to see just how safe this vaccine is before they take it. We're seeing very high levels of vaccine hesitancy around this vaccine, particularly in young black men. In some settings, as high as 75% of young black adults have said they're not going to take this because of their fear of the safety around this vaccine. So I think, you know, what has happened with Operation Warp Speed and vaccine development in general has been absolutely remarkable. And we spent $9 billion to do that. The last mile of getting vaccine to where it needs to be is still a challenge because of the way that these vaccines have to be handled, particularly the Pfizer vaccine being kept at minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit, et cetera. But my biggest fear right now is the future of this pandemic rise on the last inch. The last inch is that needle into the arm. And if we don't see vaccine uptake beyond what I just described, this pandemic is going to continue well in through next year and in a sizable way. So the vaccine is surely a critical, necessary component to really addressing this pandemic. But right now, I'm not sure what impact it's going to have. Are you skeptical of the vaccine? Do you think vaccine skepticism is warranted? You know, I'm not skeptical at all. And I think what we haven't understood is we need to tell a story. We need to tell people what will happen and what they can expect. We need to explain to them what Operation Warp Speed is so that they don't sit there and feel like somehow, you know, this is a Star Wars vaccine that skipped a lot of the safety steps. You know, it was all we talk about is the speed, the speed and the speed. For example, if we vaccinate, you know, 10 million people in a week's time following the vaccination of those people, you'd expect to see in in 55 to 64 year olds almost 1400 heart attacks. 1,400 heart attacks in the first week afterwards, just by chance alone. Now, we have not prepared the public to say when the first report comes out about somebody had a heart attack 24 or 36 hours of the vaccination, somebody else had one at 72 hours and then hit social media. I could see this entire program coming to a screeching halt because we have not done the work we needed to do to help the media or even the public understand these are going to normally occur. So just to be clear, you would take the vaccine and you would recommend to your family that they take the vaccine? I can't wait to get my dose of vaccine, but like everyone else, I have to wait my turn. There are others who surely need it more than I do, both from their risk and from the potential for serious illness. I can't wait to get my vaccine. I can't wait for my family members to get their vaccine. You know, any fear that you might have about these vaccines, I surely understand. And I think we owe you information to address your concerns. And when they see the people in the public health community out getting vaccinated and promoting that vaccination, then I think hopefully that will be a reason for them to get vaccinated. But if it's not, I promise you they will have another motivating factor. Because as this pandemic rages on, they will begin to lose more and more loved ones themselves. And unfortunately, it may be one of our listeners that we lose. But we're seeing up to 20 to 25% of young, healthy adults who get infected, who go on and develop this condition we call long haulers disease, where at four, five, and six weeks out, they just continue to go downhill. And they have this severe chronic fatigue syndrome-like picture. There's clear evidence of damage to their hearts and their lungs. Uh, They experience a thing called brain fog, where in some cases they can't remember what day it is. 
Um, this is a bad disease. And I really do distinguish vaccine hesitancy issues from those of the anti-vaccine crowd. I don't want to confuse those two. Once you understand why people have reluctance, then you can target the kind of information programs, the kind of information campaigns. You know, I've said over and over again in my career, you know, I'm not here to scare people out of their wits. I'm to scare them into their wits. The challenge I think we also have is we live in a different world environment. In my 45 years in this business, I have never seen the kind of anti-science environment that seems to survive quite well, where anybody can have their own set of facts and they seem to prevail. And they also are angry to the point where they blame those who are involved with trying to control it as the you know, culprits in this whole situation. It wasn't until the past year that I ever received my first death threats. And now, you know, I almost expect it. You know, just yesterday I was on a, a, a national cable TV show and talked about what we had to do to basically bubble ourselves up at Christmas time so that we didn't have transmission. I have just come off a whole number of horrible situations on Thanksgiving, some of them close friends, where transmission occurred when people got together. Yesterday, you know, I might as well have been a, a hardened criminal in the minds of many who heard me talk about Christmas, like as if I was trying to steal Christmas from all of them not listening to the message of how to protect mom and dad or grandpa and grandma, et cetera. So I think the challenge we have right now, Eric, that is really front and center is dealing with this pandemic anger. Where does the anger come from? And what can we do to try to get through to those people? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I wish I did. You know, I, I had a... Um, Civil War historian, quite notable one, say to me a few months ago that for the first time in his life in dealing with the COVID issue, he understood what it must have felt like for mothers and fathers watching half their sons go fight for the North and half for the South. It has been such a divisive issue in so many families, in so many social settings, this is where I'm trying to listen more and have a smaller mouth to say, why is this happening? What's going on here? What message are we missing? What connection are we missing? And I don't know. I wish everyone, just everyone, could spend 20 minutes in the corner and watch what goes on in an intensive care unit. I had a, an acquaintance, an intensive care doctor, hardened veteran who had spent time in Afghanistan and Iraq He's seen it all. And have him share with me one night in, you know, a very tearful moment how he just couldn't do this anymore. And during that day, he actually used his iPad four different times to let family members watch one of their loved ones die under his care. And he just felt broken. He just couldn't do this anymore. If people could see that, if they could understand what's happening in our hospitals right now, a quarter of our hospitals in this country are on the brink of collapse. And largely, we don't have more healthcare workers. We're burning out the ones we have. State health departments, local health departments are hurting badly for financial support. And the hope that the current negotiations in Washington would lead to additional resources can simply not be overstated. We're asking a workforce now in public health, which is grossly, grossly inadequate to do what it's already doing, now to expand their activities and take on all this vaccine dissemination. 
We do know that, you know, 10 to 20 percent of individuals getting vaccinated will get sore arms uh, and maybe the next day are not able to work for at least one day because of flu-like symptoms. But once we get into the general public with vaccination, uh, I'm very worried about how capable we are of actually delivering these vaccines with the current infrastructure we have in public health and the lack of resources that they have. So this is another one of those challenges that says $9 billion program, amazing science, research, amazing manufacturing capacity review, but what's the last mile, what's the last inch? And that's what we haven't really addressed yet. Is there a need for more kind of on the ground reporting? To your point, do the stories need to be brought to life more? One of the major turning points in our war in Vietnam was all of the evening newscasts that showed the trauma, the drama, the pain and the suffering of war in Vietnam. And it turned the American public against it. Yeah, I think it is true. If people were able to see more what went on in intensive care, and if they could hear these doctors and nurses and medical staff, uh, health team members share just what they go through every day and the agonizing issues of these patients and what they go through, I think that would be at least potentially helpful. How will the vaccination work? I know that there's multiple doses. When does immunity kick in? Maybe you could just give an overview there. Well, we're learning. And, and the only data we really have right now to address in a public manner are the data from the messenger RNA vaccines, the Pfizer um, vaccine, as well as the Moderna vaccine. It looks like very likely you may get some, you know, potentially significant protection even after a first dose, a priming dose is what we call it. And there was even questions raised yesterday at the FDA advisory committee meeting, do we really need two doses? And I think the conclusion was expressed, yeah, it would be really the best because the priming dose gets you started. The booster dose, the second one, is what really expands on your immune response, potentially giving you more durability and more protection. So in the sense of protection after your first dose and before you get the next one three to four weeks later, you're already starting to build up some protection, whether it's 40 or 50 percent, we don't know, somewhere in there. Then after you get the second one, probably within 10 days, uh, you're also seeing even a major enhanced protection from that second dose. I do want to ask you a bit about distribution. There's a lot of debate and controversy now about who will be prioritized. So how would you recommend that states make those decisions? And how, in practice, do you expect states will make those decisions? I will give you my thoughts on that. And I just want to be clear that it does not reflect my uh, and my position uh, advising the Biden-Harris campaign. So I can't speak for the transition team and where they may eventually go on this issue. Uh, so this is my personal voice here. At this point, I think it was the low-hanging fruit that was really easy with health care and with long-term care. They were apparent right up in front. But once we get beyond that, then where does it go next? And there's been this great debate between that of essential workers and what does that term really mean, people who have to go out and work every day. The issue around racial disparities has been uh, a big challenge, and I just want to be really clear that racial disparities by themselves don't make you uniquely at risk. It's the socioeconomic status, it's the living conditions, it's the crowding, it's all the things that collectively come together that put you at higher risk with regard to that. It's not really your skin color. 
and that's an important point. Uh, but how do you incorporate that into the next level of recommendations? Uh, you know, who's more important? Bus drivers, school teachers, uh, grocery store clerks. I mean, I can go through the list. When you start thinking about it, they're all really important. And how do you deal with that? How, how do you get those people vaccinated? How about the older generation of individuals who are not in long-term care? Where do they fit in relative to everyday essential workers? They're surely more likely to die from the virus if they get it. Uh, what other underlying health conditions should be considered? Should we be taking people who have certain kinds of kidney disease, cardiovascular disease that might put you at higher risk for having a serious outcome? This is where it gets really tough in terms of prioritization. But as I pointed out, I actually think, and, and, and I really hope I'm wrong here, I, I would love to be wrong on this, is that after several months, we will get vaccine to everyone who wants it. And we're still going to have a chunk left and a chunk of people who are not vaccinated because of vaccine hesitancy. And that's where I think at that point, it'll be all comers could and should get vaccinated. And I don't think we'll get them. Do you anticipate that scenario you described where sort of everyone who wants a vaccine has gotten it? Is that by the end of Q1, by the end of Q2? Like, what's the time frame? Yeah, I think it'll probably be in Q2. And part of that is dependent on how fast the vaccines arrive. But you know, if we don't get that high number protected, then we'll see transmission going on just inside the United States. Even if we get a very high percentage of individuals vaccinated, we're going to see spillover from the rest of the world. Because one of the tragedies that's unfolding before us right now is many low and middle income countries are not in line soon to get vaccine. You know, we live in a global society, and as much as we may try to, quote unquote, quarantine ourselves off from the rest of the world, we can't. And so it's in our best interest to make sure the world gets vaccinated. I'd like to think we'd do it for altruistic reasons. We should, but we need to do it clearly from a public health standpoint and a strategic reason so that we don't continue to see the virus, in a sense, seep into the United States from other hotspots around the world that will continue with vaccine doesn't exist. Let's just say we fast forward to call it May of next year and, you know, all of those Americans who want a vaccine have taken one and those who are skeptical have not. Will there be enormous pressure placed on those who have not taken the vaccine to do so? This is a critical point, and it's actually being addressed almost every day right now because we keep hearing from business organizations, school settings, et cetera. Should we mandate this vaccine? To me, mandates are only as effective as you can actually enforce them. So I don't quite know how mandates will play out with this disease, but uh, I know that businesses are surely looking at it as a way to limit their own risk of transmission within the workplace, as well as just to keep in a healthy workforce. But will there be any risk posed by those who have not taken the vaccine to those who have taken the vaccine? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, remember, even the, the data right now suggests these vaccines are 95% effective. And so even if I'm vaccinated and have 95% chance of being protected now, that may drop. Well, what's my risk? My risk is going to be around somebody else who's infected, who then infects me, just like we see with childhood immunizations. You know, the big challenge we have with measles outbreaks is when you get a core group of people who are not vaccinated, you know, you can still see outbreaks occur in this country when the virus gets brought in by somebody else. 
so that if the vast majority of people are vaccinated, this one virus doesn't have any place to go to be transmitted. To what degree do you think employment will be a motivator? Meaning, you know, I may be a vaccine skeptic, but my employer is telling me in order to go back to work and start getting paid and feed my family, I have to take the vaccine. Will that be enough to coerce a significant number of people to take it? I think it will be. And I I mean, I think it'll surely have an impact. Let's put it that way. Uh, Whether some people will still not agree to it for that reason, I don't know. But I think that will be important. At that point, really have to see if many of these people will have hopefully, quote unquote, converted to uh, their vaccine hesitancy to vaccine acceptance just by seeing the ongoing transmission of cases. Dr. Osram, what is your message for those of us at home listening about how to handle the holidays safely? And is there anything that we can hope for going into the holidays? You know, this is the year for the ultimate love of family, of friends, colleagues, whatever. You know, I, I don't ascribe to recommendations that have come out from public health agencies like the CDC or even some of my colleagues that talk about, well, you know, we should isolate ourselves for Christmas so that we don't have transmission as, you know, a family. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But if, in fact, we can't, then these are ways to limit your risk. And I find this terribly, terribly unhelpful. Because what it does, I think it mixes the public up with what really is the recommendation where they say, well, they didn't really say we couldn't. They just said, if you do this, do that. So for Christmas today, and I, and I have been involved with so many of the situations around Thanksgiving, where people who are known to the family, maybe family members who were not quarantined, came home. There were transmission events that occurred in these households. People died. People died. And the family is devastated. So my message is the ultimate love, and this is our COVID year. It won't be like last year. It's not going to be like next year. Just know that one time we're saying, unless you have basically been bubbled for seven to 10 days beforehand, where you didn't have contact with others outside your, you know, your home, your pod, people in your pod didn't have any other contact, don't get together. And so this isn't even about limiting size, where some people say, well, keep it under 10. Well, what does that mean? I've seen outbreaks occur where only six people got together, but one of them happened to be a college student coming home who had not been bubbled and brought the virus home. So I would even say if it's a family member, if they can't be potted, they shouldn't come home. And you'll say, well, that's just horrible. You know, you can't do that. I'm telling you what the alternative is. The alternative potentially is somebody dying. And so I I just can't emphasize enough that the ultimate love for Christmas this year, and it will be lonely. You know, it'll be very lonely. This is the first Christmas in my entire life I've not spent with my children. It'll be all virtual. For the last 38 years, I have read the Polar Express every Christmas Eve to my children when they were young. As they grew older and as adults, I continued to read it. I now read it to my five grandchildren. Last year was really a a big moment because two of the grandchildren are old enough to help Cole read it with me. This is the first year I will not read it in their presence. I will have to do it virtually. Now, I know I'm sounding like the Grinch that stole Christmas. I understand that. But if I can save one life, if I can help one person not put themselves in harm's way and all the ones they love, then it'll be worth it. 
And so I, I have more hope today than I've ever had. As I said at the very beginning of this program, these are the best of times and the worst of times. The best of times is we have highly effective vaccines coming down the pike. Please, let's all try to get to those vaccines as our life boys in life and save us. And one day we'll look back on this horrible crisis and know we did what we could to get through and we made it. Thank you so much. I think this was a fascinating conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Eric, for having me. That was Dr. Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. The part of the conversation that stayed with me was the degree to which success in our battle against COVID will require cooperation and coordination at a global scale. We are truly all in this together. We hope you'll join us in January 2021 when we resume Deciding Factors with another in-depth interview with one of GLG's council members. In the meantime, I want to wish our listeners a happy holidays on behalf of all of us at GLG. Please feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us at decidingfactors at glgroup.com if you have feedback or ideas for future show topics. And don't forget to visit our website, glginsights.com, for articles, ebooks, and videos about the world around us. For Deciding Factors and GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Stay safe out there, and thanks for listening.